Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are continuing with our Anabasis of Cyrus uh, by Xenophon. Cyrus is long gone at this point because we're in book four. Or is he? Dump, dump, dump. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to be examining this week. Um, well, actually, uh, Jeff's going to give us a little overview of what we're going to be examining this week. And Shiloh is going to start us off with an, an opening question. So all you, Jeff. All right. Thanks, Brian. So uh, you guys probably remember that last time we talked about how Xenophon reanimated the headless corpse of the Greek army. Um, he essentially rebuilt it from the bottom up. And there were three groups of soldiers he had to address and three ways of talking with them, right? He had the group that he talked about the good with, the group that he stressed the noble with, and the group that he stressed safety with. And those were gradually uh, more numerous groups. And so now we get to see this reanimated body in motion um, as the Greek force heads north. Um, they can't cross the Tigris River where they are, it's too deep. Um, and so they have to head north, even though heading north looks like uh, it might be a very hard project indeed. They're heading north. They're heading up in altitude into the mountains where it's going to be cold and snowy. I think it's winter time. Um, and the folks they're heading towards, even though they're enemies of the great king, just like the Greeks are, uh, they're not friendly to the Greeks. Um, and so today in, in book four, we get uh, eight chapters. Uh, two about the Cardukians, the first folks that the Greeks have to fight in the mountains. Um, a chapter about crossing the river between Cardukia and Armenia. And then a couple chapters on Armenia, this land way high up in the mountains that's nonetheless relatively flat, um, where the snow is very deep and the winter is very bitter. Um, and then uh, finally three chapters where we see Xenophon um, teaching the Greeks or helping the Greeks to handle uh, three challenging tactical situations. Uh, ways of um, attacking people who are in superior mountain positions, ways of dealing with people locked up in fortresses, and uh, ways of rushing enemies who have the higher ground. Um, by the end, the Greeks are not at the sea, the Black Sea heading north, but they can see it from this mountaintop. They shout, the sea, the sea, and even though their journeys are by no means done, we've got three more books, um, their goal is in sight. Uh, they have some games, and the book ends with the Greeks laughing. So with that summary, Shiloh, over to you. Yeah, I'm going to combine an observation I have with an observation Jeff had to formulate a question. And you heard in his um, summary that the book... The book four consists of, of a lot of physical challenges which uh, bring the army face to face with necessity. And Jeff noticed that, and I think that's a really, um, a really precise and incisive observation that Xenophon comes into contact with or has to confront the necessities of terrain um, and, and arms. And so this book is in a certain sense an account of how he does that, but the thing that occurs to me to add to that is that in the, throughout the book, Xenophon is extraordinarily sensitive. And I think this is Xenophon the writer and Xenophon the, the statesman at the time, but also the man after the fact who's writing the book. 
He's extraordinarily sensitive to the fact that he's got to manipulate human behavior in order to confront these necessities. And so my interest is in the way Xenophon dictates in the book his account of human behavior, how he manipulates it, um, how he's using it to get these guys uh, back home. Combine that with Jeff's observation about necessity and having to direct human behavior in the face of necessity. And I think we could sort of pose the question of how these physical necessities, the terrain, um, the arms, dictate the human behavior that Xenophon is confronted with and then compel him to respond to that behavior to overcome those necessities. Shiloh, can you do a shorter version of that question for me? Because my marine brain... <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the similar, academic. Similar to Chirophobus <laughs> and Xenophon in book four and how they go very far apart. Yeah. And then come together. That's, uh, that's the, the intellectual the, brain. The two cells of my brain <laughs> kind of like went apart yeah, yeah, and then yeah. came back together. So, so. I mean, I, my, I see Xenophon as looking at the way human beings act in every book he writes and giving the reader an account of, of an, a certain sort of knowledge of human nature. Now, Jeff points out in this book that um, Xenophon encounters necessities that are difficult to overcome. And so what I'm curious about is how Xenophon manipulates and understands human nature in order to overcome those necessities. He seems to put human nature to work in overcoming necessities of battle. And how does he do that? Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's equally both good, but you know, um, I see a shiny object in, in my <laughs> peripheral vision and, and lose uh, focus quickly. Uh, so it's not your fault, it's mine. What I, we I should do is give an example, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, 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 I think an example would be good. Can, can we talk just about what it means to fight in the mountains? That'd be a good way to begin because we get a couple mountain chapters at the beginning, right? Four one and four two, and we get, you know, arguably a couple mountain chapters at the end, four six and four eight. Um, and that would be one example of a kind of uh, physical necessity, a terrain that then forces the people to act a certain way. And when we understood how people act when they have to fight in mountains, then we could understand what uh, cleverness or wisdom might be and what bad decisions might be when you're fighting in mountains, right? So that would be the, the connection. So I, I can just offer my impression. I mean, one thing it looks like uh, fighting in a mountain means high ground is really important to people. And what parts are passable and what parts aren't passable are really important to the fighters as well, right? So that, that seems like one way in which the terrain then um, influences behavior. You got to go grab the high ground. And there's also the, you know, I, we actually have a mountain warfare training center the Marine Corps does in Bridgeport, California. And I never went, but I was, um, a lot of the guys that I worked with went and uh, to pretty much a man, it was the most miserable training that mm. that Marine Corps offered. Like it, it's it's horrible. Um, and and the idea of being cold, being this cold and this hungry, and fighting yeah. at the same time. I don't know if there's a more challenging leadership um, environment than that. Mm -hmm. because you and you see it in this chapter guys are just like no just let me die yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're just piss off <laughs> uh, i'm just gonna die is is kind of where they're at so uh it's interesting that 
something about Xenophon, and it, it might be the nature of leadership in general, that it kind of calls upon you to go, no, get up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. no, we're going we're gonna to get through this. Mm-hmm. But he also doesn't do that all the time, right? There's like a couple times where he's like, oh, yeah, we'll come back for you in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Wink. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it's a little confusing to me, this chapter, in terms of um, the, the troop welfare piece of the leadership, um, which is kind of what Shiloh was talking about. But mm-hmm. also on the just, you know, fight and maneuver, like close with and destroy the enemy. Um, huge advantage to defenders in right. this type of terrain right. and yet the greeks still pull off what they're trying to pull off yeah um if i could tease the, those two things apart so the the one about the just let us die that comes in with the snow especially the being cold part um, of mountain warfare and that looks like it's a huge problem if the large part of your army is motivated by a desire for safety Right. In other words, if what's driving them is they want to live and then they're so tired, they don't care if they live or die. You've lost your major hold on them. Right. And so thinking about how to recover that hold would be one question. And then what you do if it's not possible to recover that hold. So there's there's one uh, line that we could pursue that the cold and snow angle. Um, the other thing about high ground is really interesting to me, too, and the advantage to defenders on a high ground. Because it seems to me, in general, the barbarians will flee if the Greeks charge. Um, So in general, the barbarians seem um, uh, inferior to Greeks on an equal footing. But when the footing is not equal, it becomes either completely stupid or or impossible to charge um, defenders at an elevated position. Right? You just never want to do that. And that means that your kind of warfare has to be uh, different. You have to rush and grab uh, and sneak around much more than you would have to if you could proceed openly in confidence that every time you charged, um, you could put the barbarians to flight. So the mountain warfare seems to go hand in hand with some kind of um, sneakiness or being hidden and appearing suddenly. That, that seems to be really important, especially at the beginning. Um, it's dealt with slightly differently at the end. Um, so, you know, I, I'd be happy to follow up on either of those, but those seem to me like we've brought up two really important components of how the terrain uh, impacts behavior. Doesn't Xenophon directly address the terrain? I mean, he. what I had in mind, my question is, is, is exactly this with the mountain warfare and the snow. That is to say, he sees that they're going to have to go uphill on rocky terrain. Hmm. And he sees that that's a real bummer. And so there's that beautiful speech where he says, wouldn't you rather go uphill uh, and deal with rocks and stuff and like horrible climbing, not in battle, rather than be on equal footing in battle? And so he, he turns the... He, he does this a number of times. He makes them optimistic about circumstances which would on their face inspire pessimism. And so he'll say, actually, guys, it's a great advantage for us to have to get all of our gear and go up these mountains. Because wouldn't you rather have to do that with nobody firing at you than be on equal footing with them with arrows flying everywhere? I mean, how great does that sound? Right. And so he does this a number of times. And then, you know, when he goes up there, there's one part where he says he takes the youngest men with him mm-hmm. or the, the, the or the people he assigns to it are the youngest men those 
who are most physically fit and hungriest to prove themselves, you know, and so he's making these decisions. Um, and, and he and this happens with his dream too, uh, with the optimism and pessimism, it looks like they're in a real hard spot. And then he has this dream, quote unquote, where his fetters are broken and he's mm. free. And he goes to them and he says, I just had this amazing dream that I was bound and now I'm free. And everyone's like, really? Amazing. And they sacrifice and lo and behold, the sacrifices come up good. And they're at the depths of despair at that point. And whether he really had that dream or whether he saw that he needed to like to, in, you know, inject some some vigor into these exhausted, some optimism into these exhausted people. I leave it for the listeners to decide. But you see this at every moment. And then with the snow, and I know I'm going on at length, but it, it just occurs to me that, you know, he learned some things because he, at first in the snow, he says he's severe. He turns to severity. He's like beating people or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, I think, doesn't work. Uh, and so it says, uh, this is on page 136. Um, Xenophon, who had the rear guard, perceived them. He used every art and device while begging them not to fall behind and saying that many of the enemy were assembled together and were following in pursuit. And finally, he became severe. They, however, bade him kill them, for they said they were no longer able to go on. But then if you go to the next page, uh, 137, parenthetical 21, Xenophon gets a look at how weak everyone is. This is parenthetical 19, 2021. He sees that the weak are all around and if you look at 21 it says right there Xenophon and his troops bivouacked without a fire and without dinner posting such guards as they could and so he decides to rest um, when he sees how weak everyone is and stop being severe and so he sort of learns all right that's not going to work everybody's resting everybody's weak we've got to just bivouac and it's a really disadvantageous time to do that and so I just want to point out with the snow and with the the mountains he seems to always, um, even as he's learning on the job, to always cast the task as one which is doable and which they should approach with uh, vigor and eagerness. Yeah, I think that it's so nice reading this with you guys. I'll just throw that in as a little side note. Because uh, when I, you know, especially this chapter, when you're a, you know, midshipman at the Naval Academy going Marine Corps or when you're a second lieutenant, you know, just in the Marine Corps, like you read so many books that sound extremely similar to this, you know, one book in this book. Um, you know, you read about the Korean War and you read about Guadalcanal and you and and dudes are doing the exact same stuff. Um, and so it's interesting to read this on the one hand because you go, oh, okay, yeah, this is familiar. I, I used to read a, a lot of this stuff a lot of the time. Um, but it's also interesting because it is Xenophon and is a you know, student of Socrates that there are some interesting kind of universals, both in terms of human nature and in terms of, I guess, literary illusion that are more fun to pull off than, you know, the invasion of Guadalcanal, which is literally just, you know, pretty much a diary of exactly what happened and who was in charge and what they did versus, you know, some of this stuff that has some interesting leadership stuff, but also has things like the drunken honey and you know <laughs> the, and the the palm tree that we talked about like two books yeah. you know ago and um yeah and and i just thought it's just me expressing some appreciation for you guys and how you're approaching this because you're uh maybe reading some of the tactical strategic stuff and you know not as um 
Yeah, and bringing a lot of the philosophical points in there, but also like pointing out some of the tactical strategic stuff, which is kind of helpful for me because I, yeah, it's, yeah, that's all. I just want to say thanks. The long way to say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right, Brian, that this is not the history of strategy or tactics, right? We don't care, I think, or Xenophon wouldn't have us care primarily about who defeated whom on what day. And was he really right about how many troops or, or exactly how the Cardukians shot their bows, right? Which is very interesting, by the way. I think they're leg bows. That's why the arrows are so um, uh, capable of penetrating armor and, uh, and shields. But at any rate, um, these aren't, this isn't the primary interest. The primary interest is what are the causes that produce these effects in the soldiers or in the human beings more generally, right? So how is it that Xenophon is able to um, put what is you know, repeatedly a very dire situation into the kind of light where there actually is something positive that can be achieved. And I thought one of the things that um, Shiloh was pointing to that we could talk about a little bit is um, the way Xenophon seems to not just um, paint things in an optimistic light, right? You know, oh, you think it's hard marching in the dark, but isn't it harder when you're in the phalanx, right? Even in broad daylight, you can't see anything, right? So he's got a way of pitching these things. Um, but also he seems to use parts of his forces that are not entirely exhausted as displays for those parts that are entirely exhausted as a way of where there's still something left in the exhausted folks as a way of eliciting that from them. And so what I'm thinking of here is the, is the example that, that Shiloh mentioned from uh, Book 4, Chapter 5. Um, Xenophon has just faced some soldiers who are so tired Presumably, becoming severe means he's drawn his sword against them, right? He's, he's got a weapon in his hand. He's saying, get up or I'm going to kill you. And they say, kill us. How can you move a person like that? Well, apparently, the way you do it is you take the people who still can move and you attack the enemy, right? That's the next thing he does. He displays um, the remaining force of the rear guard against the enemy who are going to be harassing them and who are going to try to, to kill the sick, right? And, uh, you know, that he routes the enemy. Um, and, uh, you know, he has to leave some of the weak behind, it's true. But it looks like it's a source of energy to succeed at something like that. It's the, I mean, there's this weird human dynamic of... <clears throat> I mean, I guess we could use the word solidarity, but, you know, I, I feel like I've seen it, I've seen it plenty of times, whether it's in Marine Corps land or in work land, that if somebody starts pulling on a rope and a bunch of other people are, you know, just kind of sitting on the deck, not doing anything, then the people on the deck are at least going to feel terrible, <laughs> you know? Um, so if you can get, just get a few people or one person to do something, then, other people will see that and feel a degree of shame that they're not doing something. And so this is a, a perfect passage to express that, right? Because even the sick people that a paragraph before, like you said, were like, just kill me, or at least banging on their shields and making some noise, right? Because they feel bad that they're sitting there um, and that somebody's fighting to protect them. And it's, it's just, it's such an interesting... There's not, I don't know if there's an example that this doesn't happen, 
except when we've bifurcated humans into, you know, us and them. But aside from that, like this, this is every single situation I can really think of in a cohesive group of human beings. Even on you know, when we did Russ and we'd have the, you know, the Humvee in the back or the truck in the back picking up guys that straggled, you know, the look of shame on their face just for like not being able to make one run one day um, is, is, is nuts on a purely logical level, but on a humanistic level, it makes a lot of sense just because that's what we witness all the time. That remark also about um, the division between us and them diminishing the force of, of shame, right, um, makes a lot of sense to me too. And the way, the way I'd be inclined to, to um, point it out in this case, there is a big difference between uh, those soldiers who are motivated by fear for their safety and those soldiers who are motivated by concern to be noble or honorable or um, to do beautiful actions, right, or not be seen doing shameful actions. Um, there, there's a wide difference between those two kinds of human beings, but that difference needs to be um, concealed as much as possible, right? They're all Greeks. They're all part of the same force. And so you might be able to move some of the people whose motivation otherwise would have been safety if you put them in a situation where um, to do nothing seems really shameful, right? Like having other people fighting to protect them. Yeah, there's a lot of examples in the book of, of um, the kinds of necessities we're discussing, how to motivate people in the face of, um, of odds or of terrain uh, or of... Uh, high ground this this sort of thing that that's uh you know seems impossible at first glance but there are some other kinds of necessities and i don't want to move away from the mountain thing jeff because i'd be eager to hear at some point what sorts of things you see xenophon doing cleverly to motivate people you've already said some of them but i just want to inject into the conversation that there are two occasions in the book where um, xenophon and his men or xenophon and kairosophus are lied to one is when the guide, there's a guide who says that there's no high road in a certain mountain. And lo and behold, there is a high road. And they were lied to. And, um, you know, they, they discover this and, uh, and because they kill the, <laughs> the lying guide, I think. Is that right? And then the, the, there were two guides. They kill one of them in front of the other. And the other one's like, oh, yeah, there's a high road. Mm -hmm. He just didn't want you to know about it because his kid, his daughter's up there or whatever the case may be. And so you see this attachment coming into the into the thing. But then they meet this uh, leader named uh, Terabazas um, toward the end of the book, who has a village. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're good with me. Don't even worry about it. Like, we're, everything's good. And then they find out he's making preparations to attack them, right, <laughs> down the line. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are these sorts of necessities that come up, and I wonder how the character of these things differ. They're dependent on people. The people show themselves to be two-sided or double-faced. And then Xenophon has to work their way, his way out of this. And that's a different kind of necessity. And in a way, it's much shiftier ground. It's like quicksand because you think you stand one place and you, and you actually don't. Whereas when a mountain is a mountain, it's there. It's, its features are there. You can do the, the calculus. But with these people, with the human things, it's very, very unpredictable. And of course, don't put it past Xenophon to lie too, or his men to lie too, because there's a scene where they tell some women who are getting water that they are coming from the king. 
uh, to go find the satrap of a village. And you're like, no, you're not. And then toward the end of the book, there's this beautiful scene where Xenophon t- says to Kairos Ophis, well, you're, you're, a, you're a Spartan. You steal. Like, you're a thief. <laughs> you should go be a thief. And he's like, well, no, you're an Athenian. You guys steal from the public treasury all the time. You, you're a good thief. You go steal and lie. And so, you know, they, they don't hesitate to implement the uh, actions of, or the, uh, they don't hesitate to use lies, but they are confronted with the necessities of others lying. And so it's a fascinating juxtaposition between the terrain on the one hand and the psychology of lying people on the other. Uh, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, argument between um, Chirisophus and Xenophon, right? And this is uh, chapter six around like parenthetical 14. Like, I, I love this because you can play it both ways to a certain degree. Uh, like we see that Xenophon and Chirisophus, however you want to pronounce that, uh, start to argue back in like chapter one of book four, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're already, because uh, Chirisophus kind of uh, stretches out too much. Xenophon catches up and is like, hey, what are you doing? And Chirisophus says, like, I had to do this. I couldn't wait for you guys. So we're setting up that tension. And now we get to this, uh, you know, chapter six of book four. And they're kind of calling each other out for things that they can't control. Right. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of this in the Marine Corps to a certain degree. Um, A, let's call it jocular joshing of your kind of fellow Marines. Um, And so I'm wondering... If they are, you know, I guess it's up to the director in the scene, but are they are they being playful with each other or are they talking smack or is Xenophon trying to illustrate uh, some a fracturing of this relationship and potentially the army? Like, what do you think is happening here? Yeah, I, I was reading this as um, a, a jocular exchange, right? So that it was... Um, evidence of some kind of mutual understanding and trust between Kairosophus and Xenophon. And um, that led me to oppose it to the earlier disagreements, not only the one where um, from earlier in the book where the Greek forces are so stretched out that Kairosophus is pressing on necessarily means that Xenophon and his troops suffer. But the disagreement over the captive, when they took an, an Armenian chief and his son captive, and, and uh, Kairosophus kind of botched the handling of the Armenian, um, they had a disagreement there too. So I was taking this as a kind of um, what um, healing of that breach and a sign that Kairosophus and Xenophon could um, communicate which one, with one another, which means that Xenophon can be a little more explicit about the way he thinks things should be handled, um, which might mean, tell me what you guys think of this, that earlier in the book, um, Xenophon maybe didn't feel that he could be open about the way he wanted things to be handled because they might look shameful to Kairosophus. Um, I'm wondering if, if there isn't a kind of education of Kairosophus going on as to the value of Xenophon's approach. When you say shameful, what you said that Xenophon wouldn't uh, say what he meant because he thought it would be shameful. What do you mean? Yeah. That? So what I'm thinking of is that um, you remember the earlier disagreement. Um, it looks like the army is necessarily stretched out because they're moving through mountains. And so it's a thin column 
that extends for a long um, distance. Um, Kairosophus could go slowly, but he wants to charge um, the held positions to get to them as quickly as possible, I guess to preempt them being taken by the enemy. Now, does he want to do that because that's the best um, uh, tactic to pursue when you're fighting in the mountains? Or does he want to do it because um, he thinks it's the most beautiful way to fight openly, right? Press on as quickly as possible. Don't sneak around. Mm. That's not so clear to me. Um, but by the end of the book, it seems to me like he um, is open to receiving guidance from Xenophon about sneaking around. And Xenophon thinks that sneaking around is a good idea. Um, and, and not fighting face on, especially when a position is held. Right, so that's the sort of thing I was thinking about. I think that that, that sounds very uh, believable, plausible, and it also kind of tickles my uh, maneuverist fancies. Yeah. Uh, so our Marine Corps listeners, uh, it, what Xenophon is doing is saying, attack the gaps and not the surfaces. And what uh, Chirosophus is doing is attacking the surfaces and not the gaps initially, which you know, we talked about this, um, them stretching out and coming back together at the end. And I'm wondering, and this might be pulling too much on this thread a little bit, but it's still, you know, the Anabasis of Cyrus, the ascent of Cyrus. And we know from Xenophon's other work, the education of Cyrus, that, he, that Xenophon thinks very highly of Cyrus. And so I'm wondering if there's potentially some theme here of, well, there are two competing theories, one or hypotheses. One is that as Xenophon and Chirosophus are ascending these mountains in Armenia, that they are somehow becoming more like Cyrus, that this is an ascent of, of them towards becoming a better leader, um, a more intuitively um, capable human being in terms of understanding other people and what motivates them. Um, or I think because every writer is like this, um, whether it's, whether they wrote, um, you know, whether it's John Grisham or William Shakespeare's, they're like, no, let's put Cyrus in the title because that'll sell more copies. You know, I know we're going to kill him at the end of book one, but like, we got we to gotta get that money. So one of those two hypotheses is what I'll throw out, <laughs> that yeah. it's a philosophical nod towards becoming more like Cyrus, which is this idea of a great leader, or to sell more copy. I think it is the first one, right? Well, the decisive moment in this book involves the crossing of a river, right? And the, a river was crossed right before Cyrus died, right before the crucial battle in book one, too, right? So it looks like the ascent um, is not homogenous or continuous. There's an ascent and then there's a crossing over, right? And the, the dream of Xenophon in this book is the dream that precedes the crossing over of the river. So yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely on the right track. We are supposed to see how um, the Greek 10,000 are like and different from Cyrus, but they're ascending just as Cyrus was ascending, and they uh, cross over just like Cyrus crossed over. Uh, and that crossing over is the thing that separates the early xenophon Kairosophus um, mm -hmm. relationship from the later one, where Xenophon seems to predominate and Kairosophus seems to recognize his value. Um, so yeah, I, I think that all these things we're looking at uh, have to somehow come together to tell the story of book four here. Um, 
I agree. I, I would say one thing that occurs to me is that the same way that the education of Cyrus is, could be read, the title is sort of the education Cyrus provides to his people and maybe the defects of that education. The title seems to me, given what book four illustrates about Xenophon's superior virtue, is um, the, the Anabasis of Cyrus is sort of the, the ascent, the opportunity for ascent that Cyrus provides Xenophon. You know, it's it's um, Xenophon is ascending, but he's doing so in a very different way from any of the other leaders in this book or or the previous book um, do. And it's done on the basis of of a kind of um, knowledge of human nature, which certainly one the old Cyrus from the education lacked. There, there's you know, th this comes out in a very beautiful um, moment that really got struck my attention in uh, chapter three of this reading. There's just a brief moment where Xenophon, you have to remember every at every moment, he's writing the book. And so he's writing about himself. And so when he says something about himself, you know, your antenna should light up. And he says at parenthetical 10 on page 129, this is chapter 3, While Xenophon was having his breakfast, two youths ran up to him, for they all knew it was possible to go up to him as he was having breakfast or dinner, or even if he were sleeping, and to wake him and tell him anything one had to say that related to the war. Everybody knew, everybody knew that they could talk to him. This was the environment that he had cultivated. And, and you, you know, Jeff was talking earlier about how Xenophon was pussyfooting around with Kairosophus, didn't want to speak openly to him. But this indicates that everybody thought that at any moment they could speak honestly to Xenophon. That's not the case with Cyrus. <laughs> That's not the case with... Uh, the old Cyrus or the Cyrus from this book. And so there's something, some way that Xenophon is presenting himself, in addition to being a great advisor and tactician, that his men, you know, feel like they can say anything to him. I was just reading Machiavelli's Prince with my students, and Machiavelli says, you know, you shouldn't, um, not just anyone should be able to say anything to you. On the other hand, you don't want them to say nothing to you mm. and deceive you. You want advisors who will say something to you, but when they say it, they're scared to say it. Not, you know, because you're going to punish them, but because they revere you. But if they don't revere you, they'll mislead you, right? And, and if they think you're an idiot, um, they won't say they'll mislead you. And if they're scared of you, they won't say anything at all. So it has to be this middle ground. And it occurs to me that Xenophon is really doing that. People revere him, and yet they'll tell him things. And that's just a rare place to be. They don't, they're not scared of him. Um, they don't think he's a fool. And so this is just a, a feather in the cap of the man. Oh, I was just going to say, it's interesting because it, it doesn't, it just says to the use, right? And they, they come to Xenophon, but then Xenophon takes them to Chirisophus, right? So the use don't go to Chirisophus because he's not approachable like this potentially, right? I mean, it might just be that Xenophon's closer to wherever they were, but I think on some degree they might do the math and go, Xenophon will listen to us. Chirisophus might be like, what were you doing? Um, by the same token, I don't believe all the parts of this story, but <laughs> I think... Um, Something's just setting my antenna off, and this this happens quite a bit. And um, I'm sure I've pushed this roughly 700 times on the podcast, but in Patrick O'Brien's Master Commander series, where it's like there's a little bit of a nod of you got most of what's true in this story, but there's a few parts that we you know changed and added a little bit when the sailors are talking to the officers, and and so you know. Um, the fact that you know, oh, we were just out collecting sticks for a fire. It's like, mm, okay. And then it's like, we saw uh, some women 
uh, and an old man, and they were storing clothes. And I'm just like, mm, I think you just, I think you might have saw some women. I think that's part of the story is true. Um, so we went across to get the clothes. Mm, I don't know if you went across to get the clothes. But, uh, you know, the moral of the story was we found a place to cross the river. And so I was like, oh, okay, if you want to dress it up with all this other stuff, like we were out, you know, collecting firewood. Okay. Uh, we saw women storing clothes in a, why, why would you cross to go get clothes? Like you saw women and you were chasing after them. Um, anyway, I, it is a very interesting, but the, everything you said, I think is true. And also to add to it, it's this, that they went to Xenophon first before yeah. his, they, then they say, let Xenophon go to Chirisophus and let him pitch it because Chirisophus isn't as approachable. Yeah. Yeah. That seems good to me. There, there are a few more details I want to press on here. Um, some that puzzle me and some that I think are really um, beautiful. Um, it's not clear to me uh, who the they are who all knew that it was possible to go to Xenophon. I think it's, it's natural to think everybody in the army knew that. Um, did Chirosophus know that? Uh, you know, he himself, it looks like, doesn't have that open door policy, right? Uh, so it seems to me at least possible that um, this is true for all the youths in the... Um, in the armed forces here, in the among the ten thousand. Now, who are these youths? Are they soldiers? Well, they're armed, but I don't think they're. They weren't at least kitted up as hoplites when this happened, right? Maybe they are part of the baggage train, the hangers-on, right? Young people. Maybe they're the children of some of the women that were told are being smuggled. Um, it looks like they were not on duty when this happened, right? So this means that Xenophon has contacts with young people who are maybe not soldiers um, in this host that he's um, becoming a leader of, right? And that these are the people who are wandering around looking for opportunities to steal things, by the way, to steal clothes, right? They're all hard up. They, they could use it for bandages or whatever. I, I do take it seriously that they um, were stealing clothes. And there's no shame in coming to Xenophon and saying, yeah, we are out stealing clothes, right? Um, so it, it's very interesting who these youths are that Xenophon seems to have um, regular, some kind of regular contact with. He reminds you of his teacher, who also hung out with youths, some of whom had uh, what looked like questionable characters or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah, I think that only intensifies the point all the more, Jeff. I mean, the, the, one of the two the two men who's seen as the leaders of the army is approachable by children. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you just, <laughs> that's not the case with, with any of these other people featured in this book or, or even Xenophon's own Cyrus. I mean, you just, mm. it's just, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. And the humanity of the man. I mean, you know, like there's this, I mean, I, I mentioned this before we started recording, you know, when Xenophon insists that they get the dead bodies back, you know, that, that we go and get, he seems to occasionally do these moralistic things and you're like, well, I wonder why he's doing that, but I wonder if that doesn't also win over some of these some of these people to think that there's a certain. I mean, despite his, or maybe because of his shiftiness and uh, and um, uh, you know willingness to lie. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone knows that that Xenophon is the uh, is the spy of the leaders, but he'll occasionally do or say a very decent thing, mm -hmm. and I think that this is necessary and needed to balance out you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the other side of his character and to earn the trust of these people. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that he can 
still managed to build a relationship with Chirisophus and also be the popular captain, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's tricky, you know, because whenever, whenever you have people kind of competing for, let's call it dominance or hierarchy or whatever you want to call it, there frequently is the, the hard guy <laughs> and the likable guy. Yeah. And a lot of times that a they're not going to get along very well, and b the hard guys the thing the hard guy doesn't like about the likable guy is that he's likable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that you know Xenophon can take these views to Chirisophus, lay out what's going on, and Chirisophus is like, yeah, let's cross the river, um, is interesting that he's able to navigate what is I think a natural kind of jealousy that happens in kind of command level gigs. So should we try to look um, closely, having um, given this beautiful account of, of Xenophon's humanity at maybe the instance that's most proximate to his inhumanity, which is that instance that we mentioned earlier of the two captives uh, and the one who's killed in sight of the other. This is back in Book 4, Chapter 1, um, starting in Parenthetical 22. Um, just to you know, get the, get the full picture and, and balance things in the way that Shiloh was suggesting they needed to be balanced. Um, what what do we make of this episode? It comes right on the heels of the disagreement with Kairosophus, right? So um, Xenophon is feeling under pressure because uh, two people have been killed who are among the rank and file soldiers, one of whom is said to uh, have been brave. Because um, Xenophon's coming under fire from these really powerful bows that the Carducians have. And um, the problem is that uh, Kairosophus is, um, is moving along too quickly so that the rear guard has to both fight and flee at the same time to keep up and not get cut off. Right? And uh, Kairosophus justifies himself at parenthetical 20 based on the terrain, the necessities imposed by the terrain. Uh, you see, he says, how impassable all the mountains are. You see one road, it's steep. You see a crowd of people at the pass. Um, that's why I was hurrying, based on all these visible things. And Xenophon, um, he, he concludes by saying, yeah, the guides we have deny there is any other road. And Xenophon then opposes this with what not he can see, but what he's heard from one guide as a consequence of killing the other guide in front of this guide. Um, what what did what did we make of this? I mean, I like it. it's a very good call out that he does. You know, Chirisophus uses that word "see" multiple times yeah. in that one line, and that Xenophon is then relying on this is what I'm hearing from people, and I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, it's, I mean, it seems like we're using our senses. Right. But we're also using this kind of collective reasoning. And this might be how Chirisophus and Xenophon are repairing this relationship that we see stretching apart is this is what I see. This is what I hear. Let's figure out. Let's use our reason to determine what is the correct way to go forward. Mm -hmm. I think Shiloh was right to um, point out that... um there are the kind of natural features of the terrain which seem to correspond nicely with see- seeing. And then there are the human beings involved and that seems to correspond nicely with hearing, right? Because they're gonna talk at you, they're gonna tell you things. Um, and 
you know, part of the difficulty of being in this situation where the survival of your army depends on getting good information out of an interrogation um, is, you know, uh, knowing how far you're willing to go. Um, it's not clear from the text, I think, as it stands, that Xenophon was an advocate of um, killing the one guide in front of the other. It's, it's phrased in the passive here, somebody did it. But it was under Xenophon's and Kairos' office's command. Yeah. Um, and it looks like it comes out only afterward that the one guide who was killed, he refused to say anything or he refused to be helpful, I guess, um, because he feared for his daughter. Yeah. Right? And I take it that that fear is actually... Um, uh, the result of the impact of the physical terrain on the human being. If I could put it out this way, uh, lay it out this way, you don't have to pillage people that you come across if provisions are plentiful. But if you're in a, po a position like a, a mountain pass um, at high elevation where there's not a lot of food, Everybody you come across uh, gets treated as a hostile. At least you're going to take their stuff and that's going to endanger their lives. It's very hard if you've already been given carte blanche to take things from the civilians you come across or the enemies you come across to say, but among those things is not the daughters, right? So drawing that line is very hard to do. Um, so it's reasonable to suspect because of the physical circumstances that if the Greeks were to fall on these villagers, the daughter would be killed or, or raped, right? Mm -hmm. So the guide is not wrong in assessing the necessities of the situation. And in that circumstance, he decides he'd rather die than help them. Yeah. And you can't know. I mean, this is something where it's the attachment that causes the action. I mean, I agree with you about the terrain, mm. but this is something that, I, I mean, I would go back and forth. Is this something you can't know, but you could surmise he must have something going on up there. Like there's gotta be something up there that's very, very important to this man, a, a love attachment. But I, and, and so I, I agree with what you said, Jeff, but what I wanna do is put this scene in conversation with one that comes at the very end of the book that mirrors it. And that is that, um, so in this scene, there is a guide who, who is killed because he wants to save his daughter. Well, if you turn forward to, to 130, page 139, this would be chapter six for people who don't have the Wayne Ambler translation. They have um, a leader of a village and they have taken all of his relatives. And Xenophon is sort of telling this guy, you know, this guy's leading them through and giving them various things. and. Uh, they, you know, he doesn't want them to harm his relatives. And so there comes a point when they set free all of his relatives, but his son, um, I think it's his oldest son and therefore his most prized relative. And they say, look, you, you continue to lead us. And once, once we get to where we're going, we'll set your son free too. And so if you look at parenthetical two, it says the village chief who was not bounded, guided them through the snow. They were already on the third stage and Kairosophus got angry with him because he had not led them to any villages. He replied that there were none in the area, and Kairosophus struck him but did not bind him. After this, he ran away during the night and was gone, leaving his son behind. Mm. And this was the sole disagreement between Kairosophus and Xenophon on the march. His harsh treatment of the guide, combined with his neglect in not binding him. 
And then there's this other remark about love, which God knows, don't, don't get me started on that. But mm -hmm. at any rate, um, the previous example Jeff cited was a man is trying to save his daughter and he lied. In this example, it's a man knows that you have a son and he's so scared of getting beaten, he abandons his son. And so the, what I take from I mean, the, uh, at the beginning is that the, the limits of the attachments are, I mean, I, I, well, let me rephrase this. I don't know what Xenophon is trying to say about the limits of exploiting people's attachments. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, the one man was willing to die for his daughter. On the other hand, this guy was, ran away and left his son. And so it seems like you can exploit these attachments for gain, but there's a limit. Mm -hmm. um, to say nothing of the disagreement between Cyrus Office and Xenophon, and the reason I bring this up is that you can see Cyrus trying to do this sometimes with success and sometimes with tragic consequences in the education mm -hmm. of Cyrus. And I, I suspect Xenophon is trying to show us something about love and attachment and manipulation of psychology here. Do you guys have any thoughts about the parallels? Well, I do, I do have one thought. It requires some interpretation, and the interpretation could be wrong, but... Um, I noted that it's um, not said who kills the guide in the earlier passage. Um, and the guide doesn't um, get to say that he's protecting a daughter, right? It comes out afterward, the second guide who's willing to help says, oh yeah, the reason the first guy didn't talk is because he has this daughter he's trying to protect. Um, it seems to me possible that what this later episode tells us is that it was Kairosophus who killed and he did it out of anger. In other words, it wasn't a practiced um, last ditch um, attempt to make somebody pliable, but uh, he was frustrated at their situation. He knew the danger that they were in and he lost his temper. And then the only question, if that interpretation is right, would be why Xenophon didn't get angry with him earlier on. And I think it would have to be because um, even though it was not what Xenophon wanted to have happened and he wouldn't have done it himself, the outcome was good in the first case. And so there wasn't really occasion to, um, for them to dispute over it, right? Because the second guy became tractable and, uh, in fact, was decisive in helping them get out of their circumstances and survive. Um, here, uh, there's no other alternative. I don't know that the boy can lead. It must be a very young boy. Um, and so Xenophon and Kairosophus have their quarrel over this. Mm -hmm. um, so it does, it does, if I put the two episodes together, it does help me a little bit in thinking that the earlier um, killing of one of the guides was not a calculated strategy. Um, but what does that say about the limits? I, I think it still suggests that um, it's possible that that guide would have held out regardless of what the threat was, mm -hmm. right? And why doesn't this guy hold out? Why why does he sneak away? He probably thinks that the next thing that's going to happen is Kairosophus is going to kill him. That's not unreasonable to think if he struck him. But why is he willing to abandon his son? Um, it looks like Armenians, just remembering the education of Cyrus uh, of the time, uh, there were some father-son difficulties. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. And you're right, uh, Shiloh, the comment about Eros, um, and there are a number of them in this book that opens up a whole can of worms. There's something erotic going on in the background in this army. That's not willing to give up the women that it's bringing along with them. Yeah. It's not willing to give up the young boys that they're bringing along with them. They um, hide them. They, they hide them. them. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, but what does that contribute to um, uh, to the argument other than a sense of the strength of this attachment? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why I was so surprised to see this guy abandon it, because you just it takes I, I mean, my sense from this book and the education is it takes a lot to get a person to abandon their attachments. And you see time after time in Xenophon, political leaders, Cyrus, maybe Xenophon himself, using those attachments to m motivate people. Mm -hmm. And here, I mean, what it really does is it's a, it seems to me to be, in some ways, it could be a very deep critique of Kairosophus. Like, he made a man abandon his son, who was the mm -hmm. one that the man was most concerned to be safe. You're a monster. You know, yeah. in a way, and, Zen and here Xenophon is with a little, like Jesus, with the little children running up to him, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had all this power over this man, and you, you squandered it because you, you went even beyond what you could have accomplished with that power. Yeah, it does seem unwise. And that makes then, if, if we're right to think the tone of their banter uh, soon after this to be jocular, that indicates how much Xenophon is really keeping under wraps in his dealings with Kairosophus. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're running close on time, but I wanted to throw out kind of one last question to you guys. Um, you know, as you're describing this and as, as both of you are kind of picking through the chapter, it's helped me understand this a lot more than, um, you know, a battle diary in terms of what happens. So in this idea of, you know, potentially you know, becoming like Cyrus or becoming some kind of more powerful leader or some idea of that. What do we make of the fact that they do end up, we touched on this, I think a little in Jeff's overview, but what do we make of the fact that they do end up on a mountain with games and sacrifices at the very end of this chapter? How does that like tie into the theme of the chapter, do you think? And, and what are we taking from that? Well, one thing that strikes me is um, seeing the sea is not the same thing as being at the sea. Um, and so they're in this difficult position. The necessities that they were under until they saw the sea, um, they've kind of learned to deal with. They've been compelled to learn to deal with them. But it looks like those necessities might have relaxed, or even worse, there might be the appearance of them having relaxed, right? Oh, we're there already. It's all over, right? It's all downhill from here, literally, right? <laughs> um, but, but maybe it's not. And so um, the ending for me is somewhat foreboding because I know there are three more books. There must be other things that are going to happen, but they're acting as if they've done it. Right, and I can't help but think that that's going to be destabilizing for the Greeks. And I wonder whether um, some of the nastiness of the games that happen, you know, uh, oh, let's uh, let's fight on this really rough, uneven ground because when we fall, it'll hurt more. Um, it isn't a sign that um, when the outside pressure is released, the inside tensions are gonna. Um, you know, cause more trouble than they did before. They're not going to be kept under wraps the way they were in this book, to the extent that they were. Yeah, well, I mean, sense. couldn't it be the inverse too? I mean, huh. I mean, couldn't it be that the, the yeah. games release the tensions? Yeah, I wouldn't want to deny that. Um, but I do think there's something mixed about the ending. I think that's what I would insist on. Okay. But yeah, the games, the games would also be a, a way of blowing off a lot of steam and the laughter in they the games. Is, yeah, they, they really it. do need it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cool. Uh, that was super illuminating, guys. Thank you for all that insight. That's, yeah, that's thank a lot you. to take in. Uh, listener, we hope you are enjoying our continued series of the Anabasis of Cyrus. Uh, we'll have this one out here shortly. And uh, you can go back and listen to all of our prior episodes, including on the Education of Cyrus at combatandclassics.org. Or you can check us out on the gram, on the Facebooks, on the Twitters, wherever you want to get your uh Cyrus content, you know. I know, and, and we're super competitive these days with the Cyrus content, so we appreciate you tuning in to us. Anyway, thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, Brian. Take care.